it's Lisa Kiefhofer again. I am so glad you are joining me for this bonus episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. So before I tell you what's in store for this special show, I wanted to take a minute to say thank you. Thank you to the listeners from around the world for subscribing and downloading this show. Thank you to the listeners who've taken time to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts to let me know how I'm doing. I want to say thank you to the listeners who have reached out to me via email or social media to tell me a little bit about yourselves and what this show has meant to you. Okay, so you're now wondering, so why are you creating a bonus episode? What's this all about? Well, I'll tell you. As I was winding down on the season of inviting my guests to be deeply vulnerable and personal with me, I was approached by fellow helping professional and podcaster Becky Aw Jennison to be interviewed on her show, The Death Dialogues Project. So what you will hear in this conversation is a deeply honest, reflective, and frankly emotional conversation about my experience of losing Eric, my husband, when I was just 40 and when our daughter was seven. I share what it was like to be holding Eric for those last nine hours of his life until he passed away in my arms. You will hear the surprising discovery I make on air, actually, as I explain why being by the bedside of my friend Joe just a few years later was actually a gift. A gift that brought a greater sense of peace to the memories of being by Eric's side. Hello, Lisa. Hello, Becky. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm so excited. And I love that technology is bringing us together from across the globe. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, Lisa, you know, the way we do things around here is if you would just please share your story with us and let us know where you're at in the world. And we'll just have a chat from there. Okay. Sounds great. My favorite thing to do, conversations. Yeah. So my yeah. So my name's Lisa Kiefhofer, and I am talking to you from Austin, Texas. Though I'm originally from Michigan and have lived around the globe, including a short stint in Australia. And um, I am on this show because I'm extremely passionate about changing the conversations around grief, and that really was fueled by the loss, the death of my husband, Eric, in 2011, uh, after a long misdiagnosis for over the course of the year, um, he ended up passing away from a massive brain tumor that had gone undetected, leaving me a widow at age 40 and a single mom to our daughter who was seven years old at the time. Yeah, thank you. So that's sort of how I came to be interested in all um, things, death and, and loss Um, from that very personal experience and then actually went on just a few years later to be by the bedside of a very close friend who ironically had been the person, one of the people who had really helped me get through some of those early sleepless nights and weeks and months because he was up late at night um, driving a cab of all things 
And so he sort of was my mental health support in a way mm-hmm. um, through a lot of that time. And then he succumbed to a lifetime battle with muscular dystrophy and was by his side a few years later. So just have had a couple of years there where um, was really faced with a lot of really important and critical losses in my life. Oh, wow. You just were brought to your knees, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, which is, you know, as I do the work that I do, which we can talk about later, and as a therapist that I was for years and social worker, this isn't a unique story. So many of us have these sort of multiplying effects, especially the older we get, um, that tends to happen. Um, And yet, uh, I think the irony is, even though it happens to so many of us, everybody thinks it's the first time happening to them because none of us talk about this in the world. And so I love that what you're doing with the death dialogue project is part of why I try to do the work I do. And also just, I'm the person in my friend's life who talks about this stuff all the time for better Mm -hmm. or for worse. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think, um, not that it, you know, doesn't make the pain painful, but I think the, one of the challenges, the, unnecessary harm that happens to us as we begin to deal with grappling with death and grief and loss is that we're not at all prepared. I'm even hesitant to use that word, but we're not really prepared because we haven't talked about it and we've been encouraged or discouraged from talking about it. So exactly. And I think that's what both of our projects are about is, you know, if we can help people practice by hearing these stories and I would just beg our listeners because most of you, have an interest or have an experience, tiptoe into those conversations in your everyday life. Um, people may bristle. They may get uncomfortable. But, you know, as we know as therapists, it's exposure. <laughs> Only through exposure are they going to work through that fear and aversion to death. Absolutely. And I think there's so much connection and and beauty. And I would say even access to sort of delight and joy and amazement in the world when you can actually become practiced and more comfortable with sitting with and talking about and feeling the harder emotions on our sort of emotional spectrum or, you know, menu of emotions that we have access to. And we are so um, comfortable with only kind of addressing the happy and the joyful and the optimistic sides of our emotional menu. And, um, I think we really do ourselves a disservice in that way. So yeah, you're going to practice. I would say to the listeners, practice talking about it. You're going to fumble and fall. You're going to get shut down, but you're also probably going to be surprised and that some people are feel relieved and excited and honored that you are trusting them to have this important conversation. Yeah. And there's a lot of programming to break through. I'm, you know, in New Zealand, there's a a very strong European culture here. And my husband's British and, you know, he was brought up with that stiff upper lip. And I know in the States we can relate to that, you know, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and absolutely, um, you know, and I, I was thinking back to his parents, world war two area and thinking about Lisa being in an environment where bombs are actually dropping, you know, in your cities and around. And it started to really resonate with me like, okay, you know, maybe there's a bit of an innocent protectiveness is where some of these things, and we were the same in the States. We had people going off to war and the Mm -hmm. trauma was so deep and so great that, you know, we're still living in the aftermath of that, aren't we? Yeah. 
I think so. And I think it's interesting that you bring this up because I think in some ways for, for folks who've been living through kind of those trauma experiences where death is so close to your door, for some people that makes them more able to talk about those things. But for many people, they're uh, reaction, you know, their flight or flight reaction is to sort of shut all those topics down. And interestingly, I just interviewed my father, um, which will probably turn into an episode of, of my podcast that I host. And he grew up and survived World War II in Budapest in Hungary um, and saw all kinds of things. And he is very self-admittedly, I'm not telling any tales out of school here. Mm -hmm. um, he is very self-admittedly not able to get in touch with any emotions of sadness or sorrow or um, could when I asked him to sort of to describe his reaction to grief, either in his growing up life or when, when we lost my husband, he, he just couldn't access that. And I think there's, that's part of that bigger culture when you grow up around kind of those kind of environments, sometimes for lots of very self-protective and good reasons, we shut down. But then the problem is we don't sort of turn back on. Right. And then we kind of walk around in the world, I think, missing things. And then the sort of double effect for that, which I, I love that you brought up the concept of culture. It's really important to me about how we learn about death and grief and loss through our culture is that not only has he not been able to sort of reopen his own emotional landscape, if you will, especially around topics of death and grief and loss, that means he didn't know how to teach me or model for me what that looked like. You know, so, you know, it's not just the, our own beliefs and our own behaviors that we walk around in the world and that we sort of have the effect and the consequences of that. But everybody around us, especially children, learn from us. And so, we have to start part of why I want to do the conversations, have the conversations I'm having like this one today on your show is that it's not just us. I mean, if you think about the environmental effects and conversations that are going on now and people are worried about the next generation and the next generation, I think the same is true about our own emotional ability to handle death and grief and loss. If we don't get it right and start modeling and practicing something that's healthy and healing, we're just going to make it that much harder for our children and our children's children to know how to cope with the ineva inevitable, because as I always say, a hundred percent of us are going to experience this, you know, yeah. there's no get, there's no getting out of it. So we got, we have to do better sort of as a community. Yes. And, you know, I do see repeatedly that, you know, the number, well, as we know with anxiety, if we peel back all the layers for severe anxiety disorders, usually it's death. Fear of death is at the very bottom. But some people don't realize that. Other people are just overtly cannot go there. And I think that's another reason that they steer away from the conversations is just a very, very high level fear of death. Yeah. And again, if we can demystify it, I mean, it's, it's a topic yeah. we don't know about. The people that are so afraid frequently haven't experienced death and haven't set by someone. And let's segue into your story, shall we? Because yeah, I know yeah. you were with your husband um, along with along his illness. And I'm so sorry about that. My brother died of brain cancer and we had six months of a year yeah. of illness that he was misdiagnosed as well. And I, I understand yeah. some of that frustration. Um, and, um, you know, just let us Hearing you so articulate now yeah. as a professional, you know, let, let us know what that looked like for you in the time, in the moments. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to do that. You know, I had been exposed to death of, you know, older relatives, and I was a therapist for a long time, so I had lost some patients. You know, I've had sort of a remote experience of being around death and loss, and um, it all happened very quickly, even though the long misdiagnosis was for a year. Um, We found out he shouldn't have been, been walking. His brain tumor had shifted his brainstem, and so he immediately within a few days, had to have a massive surgery um, of 13, I think it was a 14-hour surgery, woke up out of the surgery long enough to sort of let me in the post-op room. We said we loved each other. He was, you know, pretty looped up on drugs. They had removed a significant part of the tumor. They couldn't get it all. And by the time I made it back to the hospital three hours later after going home to check on my daughter, he had collapsed into a coma, and so I, we spent a week um, hooking him up to every test that they could think of. They went back in and did a second surgery to try to figure out what went wrong, where, you know, what was happening that was causing him to be in a coma. And what they ultimately decided was that he had had a series of catastrophic strokes um, across pretty much every segment of his brain and that he was never going to wake up. He was not going to be, I mean, there just really wasn't anything of Eric left. And one of the things that we did in the three days between us finding out he had this massive brain tumor and shouldn't even be behind this wheel of a car and actually going for surgery is did what I wish all of us would do way ahead of time as we sat down with a piece of paper and had the conversation about whether or not he wanted to be, have extraordinary measures, what he, whether he wanted to be kept alive on life support for the rest of his life, et cetera. And so, and he had chosen not to, he did not want that. And so, oh, yeah, big. it was, it was excruciating to sit in the room with my father and his father, though I was the, you know, medical power. Mm-hmm. So ultimately I was the decision maker and listen to the doctors explain what had been happening and know in my heart that I had to honor what he wanted, but also felt the incredible which was, I guess, in the scheme of things, I would say a relief because if we hadn't had that conversation, I think it would have been so much more difficult. I wouldn't have had the guidance, but I could hear Eric's voice in my head. You know, I could hear the conversation that we had. And so um, one of the things um, I will talk about sort of being in the bed with him, but one of the things I had to do at that time was sort of, I had to make the decision I had to let everybody know, and everyone sort of took their time coming by the hospital bed to say their goodbyes to Eric. Again, he was not conscious, but everybody I wanted to make sure everybody had a chance to say goodbye. And then I had to make the decision about whether or not I was going to bring my daughter to Mm. see him. She had not been in the hospital. Um, If any of your listeners have ever been around somebody who's had brain surgery, and I know it sounds like you have Becky, and I'm sorry. No, he he didn't. Okay, no, I've seen. I I I have a picture in my mind. Please tell our listeners. Yeah, I mean, his head was bandaged. Basically, you know, you know, they removed a good part of his brain. His face and eyes were black and blue. He was extremely swollen. His entire body. And so he was. You know, he didn't look like her dad. He didn't look like my husband. And So um, I consulted with a couple of our very close friends and some family members and ultimately decided to, yes, bring her in um, to say goodbye to her dad. 
my daughter was adopted as well and had already experienced loss in her infant life. And so I didn't, that she didn't have any control over. And I felt pretty strongly that, you know, as scary as it might be that someday she would want to know that she got to go say goodbye, mm-hmm. um, which as you can imagine was excruciating mm-hmm. yes. to watch. Um, but I, she's now 16 and we just had a conversation this year at the eight year anniversary of his death. And she said to me that with no uncertain terms that she was absolutely grateful that I let her say goodbye, even though it was a scary and hard thing to do, which was such a relief. I didn't know I'd been holding my breath for eight years, but apparently I had because I let out a big sigh. So oh, Lisa, thank yeah. you for sharing that. That is so huge for us all to hear. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, it's, it's not easy and I'm not, you know, everybody has to make their own decisions. So this is by no means to say it's always the right thing to do or, or, you know, never the right thing to do. One of my words that I absolutely want to ban from all English language is the word should. So if you catch me saying it, feel free to, you know, call me on it. So I'm not saying what people should do for me that was the right decision. And and thankfully it was the right decision for my daughter. So after everybody had, you know, sort of, and before she came, I had the doctors kind of remove all the leads and all the sort of detector, you know, as many cords and things that they could remove that weren't necessary so that it looked a little less like, you know, Frankenstein and a little more Mm -hmm. like the man that she knew, you know, her father and everybody came to say their goodbyes and the staff took off the breathing. I took off, you know, basically everything except a monitor, mm-hmm. obviously, so that they could know. And that was about 9 or 10 p.m. on August 15th of 2011. And I crawled into his hospital bed with him with a phone that had almost no music on it because my phone had died the morning the surgeons called me to tell me he had crashed into a coma and the phone didn't work. So I had to get a new phone and I crawled into bed with him and tried finding some of our favorite songs that we had listened to as we, you know, when we got married and as we traveled the world and adopted our daughter and all, all of the moments in our life and just laid there and really Becky talked to him all night long. I talked to him and told stories about all the important moments in our life and not just the happy ones, but the sad ones and the hard ones. His mom died soon after we started dating um, of Lou Gehrig's disease. So I really just had a conversation with him. I cried more tears than I could have ever imagined crying. And I, you know, held his hand and looked at every freckle and every hair Mm -hmm. on his body and um, just try to memorize him because I knew that um, as, you know, when you're with a partner for so long, we were together a total of 12 years, you know everything about them. You can fully form a picture of them in your mind down to their, you know, a crook in their smile or, a, you know, whatever. The one hair that always grows in a curly fashion out of place, all those things. Mm-hmm. But I knew then and I didn't really realize how much that was going to matter that it wasn't going to be so familiar someday and it was going to take so much effort to remember. So I really committed myself that night to just trying to, even though he didn't quite look, you know, that I had known because of the surgery, I really tried to just examine everything about him and soak in everything about him. Um, and about five thirty or 6 AM, 
I heard them, you know, and, and through the night, one of the things I will tell you, and, you know, I just had a guest on my show talk about this, about all the uncomfortable moments of being with somebody when they're dying. Sometimes the sounds, the smells, the feelings, all those things, it's so difficult to be around, but someday you're going to wish you had those moments, even as uncomfortable as they were you know, mm-hmm. and all night because they took him off the machine, he was, his breathing got more and more loud and snoring and labored, you know, it got louder and louder. And around six in the morning, he took his last breath and, um, the machine went off and, you know, the nurses really just, I could see them peeking on me every once in a while, but they really let me have the whole night to myself. And when the monitor tank went off, she let it be for a couple of minutes. And then she came in the room without saying anything and turned off the machine and, you know, wrote whatever notes she had to write and just left me in the room with him. Mm. And I, I wish I would have caught her name, of course, you know, in those days that, that we spent in the hospital, of course, in the neuro ICU, there's I saw so many nurses and doctors, but she was so gracious and grateful to let me have that quiet time with no machines and no breathing and um, to just be with Eric for those last moments. And I spent about 30 minutes in his bed with him and then called my father and my best friend um, and said, somebody's got to come, come get me. Mm. Um, Oh, what a powerful picture you've painted and what a gift to have that night oh it was such a gift you know that isn't for everybody and there are some deaths of course that are much more gruesome and painful so I don't again I don't want to say that oh of course it's, no it's this always is your right story. but for me this is for me and for me um the gift of being there with him so that he wasn't alone. And I was, as I said, I was by my friend's bedside and I have an interesting thing. He was conscious when he died, my friend. So we had a, it was a different dynamic than with my husband, obviously for lots of reasons, including Eric was my husband, but to be by his side was one of the most powerful um, experiences that I've ever had in my life, probably, you know, the most powerful experience I will ever have. And I'm extremely grateful. Um, and even though he was in a coma, I really do believe that he knew I was there, mm-hmm. that that was as, as important to him as it was to me. And, um, yeah, I'm so grateful that we had that chance. So many people don't have that chance because of the type of death, you know, that is happening. So I, I really, I know that sounds weird, but I really do feel grateful that, I had access to that or that, you know, I had access to that because I was acknowledged by the hospitals having a right to be in this room. Sometimes there are situations where, you know, people aren't given that respect. So I really do feel extremely grateful to have um, been loved by him and loved him and to have been there for his last breath. And I think maybe it's both of our backgrounds. I'm totally with you. You know, these stories aren't to say this is the way to do it, but we may not know these choices or possibilities could even exist unless we hear the exactly. beauty within these moments, you know? Um, right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause somebody might be thinking, I don't know if I can handle that or if, or if that's the right thing for me because they've never heard anybody talk about it as anything, but that unimagined fear that it's so scary. And not to say that there aren't times when it can be scary, but 
for me, um, because it was in a controlled space like that in the hospital, um, it was really devastating, but beautiful. And um, I hope that that might give somebody solace to think like, maybe this is a choice I can make. Um, and I can't imagine. To, I, can, yeah. I was just thinking the... You know, we are so programmed with hospital staff not to question. Yes. So if yes. you get the one nurse that says no, after hearing the story, I would be empowered to be like, yeah, yeah. I know this can happen in some situations. Let me yeah. speak you with know, someone that's else. A, that's a good point. I mean, I won't go into the details of the mismanagements of the medical system and misdiagnosing, Eric, but I do think there is there is something there to what you said, which is this is whether it happens in a hospital or in your home. This death is yours. Mm. I mean, it's theirs, but it's, you know, it's if, if this is, let's say, an intimate partner or a parent or a child or something. Like, this is your death. Yes, it's their system, but I, I get that we are trained to and brought up to, again, back to the sort of cultural context to, quote unquote, respect the experts. And there are certainly ways in which, obviously, you know, the neuro, I wasn't going to try to do the neurosurgeon's de- job. So, you know, I get respecting other expertise. But when it comes to how you want that, that moment of passing to be, that's yours. That's you have agency and choice and control. And now is more than ever, that is a moment to find your voice and speak up for what you want because you don't get that chance. You don't get that do-over. Right. Yeah, and, and and again, full well. If if that's just too much for you, very understandable yeah. as well. Absolutely, for some people, and I have friends who had that opportunity and didn't choose it. And for them, years later, even they still feel like that was the right choice for them. That for them, it was important to have that last sweet conversation that they had be the last memory, right? You know, and again, that's you know yourself best. And the more we can get to know ourselves in the calm waters before the rocky waters come so that we know what we're going to need to handle the situation, the better. So those are even the kind of conversations you might want to have with your parent or your partner or yourself now, you know, when things are calm, which is like, what do I want? Do I want somebody there or not? Or do I want to be the person who's there or not? It doesn't mean you might not change your mind, but, um, it's one less thing to try to figure out in a moment of crisis because it's so hard, as you know, you know, in those fight or flight, when the fight and flight response kicks in, it's so hard to make really rational or thoughtful decisions because we're sort of in a free fall. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, one of the reasons I, you know, I think I should, so I started to share that I was by my friend Joe's bedside yes. um, along with, my brother, who is his best friend and a good friend of mine, who's actually also been a guest on my podcast, who who lost her father. Um, and we were by his bedside. It was, you know, he had, uh, he had lived longer than the doctors had thought he would live. And he was slowly, you know, his heart was, st- st- you know, starting to not be able to support him anymore. And we sat around his bed that last day and told stories and, you know, funny Joe stories and the way he cracked us up and was obstinate and hilarious and etc. And uh, I was holding one hand and and my brother and Rami were holding, you know, everybody was sort of touching some part of Joe's body, his foot or his leg. And Joe looked at me. I mean, he could barely lift his head. He was, he had lost quite a bit of weight weight. And he looked at me and said, it's time for me to go. Mm. And I said, he did, I'm going to get so, so emotional. He said, it's time for me to go. And I said, I know, Joe, it's okay. I'm right here. 
And he said, no, you don't understand. It's time for me to go. And um, I said, I know, Joe. It's okay. I love you. I'm right here. We're here. And he took his last breath within a few seconds. Wow. And um, it was so beautiful. The three of us sat in that room and just cried and stared at each other for a while. And in some ways, it was just such a gift because I didn't get to have that conversation with Eric. Mm. And it felt like, I don't know, it just felt like I got to have something like that, that I didn't get to have with Eric. And it made me feel like that was the unspoken conversation Eric and I had, Mm. you know, in that moment. And Mm -hmm. although I left the hospital thinking, I can't believe I've now been at the bedside of two people's deaths, you know, enough already. At the same time, I feel in retrospect now, years later, how grateful, what a gift that was that Joe gave me. Um, Yeah, it was such a gift. It was Mm -hmm. so beautiful. And both of these, my husband was 44 when he died, and my friend Joe was in his late 40s. So very young, Mm. you know, very young men, Um, but a gift still to to be there. And I'm sorry, you probably said it. How long was that after Eric? That was about three years, oh, wow. two to three years. Yeah. No, it was a little more than three years um, after Eric's death. So it hadn't been that long. I had relocated from Michigan to Austin, Texas, and um, we had moved Joe here to kind of live closer to those of us who kind of knew him and cared for him. Um, and so um, he was living here also in Austin, Texas at the time. And so we were all able to be there by his side and, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good friend. That's beautiful that your people gathered that way for him. Mm. And you know what? He was a good friend for me. Like I said, you know, in those early, you know, sleepless nights, I, I went back to work after two weeks. My nonprofit called me because I was a clinical director of a big family services at the time. And they had a lot of staff leave and needed some senior staff there. And they called me and asked me to come back to work, which maybe we can talk about <laughs> workplace etiquette around grief. Mm. Anyhow, I went, I went back to work because I didn't know what else to do with my days and I needed to earn money and Lily was going back to school, but I also really didn't sleep at night. And so Joe kept me company. My friends who all knew and loved Eric and were very close, although Joe knew Eric as well too. We all traveled together as family had a hard time showing up for me and they all had kids and they couldn't be up at two in the morning and three in the morning, you know, talking to me and keeping me company over the phone while I couldn't sleep. And he did that for me. He stayed up so many nights just talking about Eric or not talking about Eric or cracking jokes or talking about TV or, you know, whatever I needed in that moment. He didn't judge me. He didn't try to he didn't try to fix me, which maybe we can talk about this a little bit. You know, my passion really is around grief. And one of the things I really appreciated about Joe was that he didn't try to fix me or make me stop having feelings like that my grief was somehow wrong. Mm-hmm. He understood that my pain and my sadness and my confusion and all the emotions that I was experiencing were exactly where I needed to be in that moment. And so he just kind of accompanied me um, in a way that was really, I couldn't have put that into words at that time. But when I look back now, I think that's really what he did. He really held space for me without judgment and without fix back to that cultural thing. We have 
this cultural thing that like sad is bad and happy is good. And right. if you're sad, you're, you're just not doing something right. You know, you're just not fixing it. And so um, he didn't have that attitude. You know, he, he was able to just sit in, with me in my pain. And that's pretty rare. You are listening to a special episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. Well, actually, as you've already figured out, in this bonus episode, I wasn't the host. I was on the other side of the microphone, answering questions. I have to say, it was a really unique experience, but it's one I'm glad I participated in. As you just heard, I made some discoveries as I was telling my story. And I've done a lot of reflecting since. That's part of one of the things that I hope, you know, projects like yours, this podcast and projects like mine, the podcast I host, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, and the work I'm doing at Reimagining Grief, I'm hoping we can all just get better at sitting with someone in their pain and not trying to fix it for them Mm -hmm. and really holding space and bearing witness because that is the biggest gift you can give somebody that I experienced that for myself through my own personal mm. loss. Mm. Um, and it's hard for us to do at a personal level because we don't like to see our people that we love in pain. And so we are, we scrap and scramble and, um, you know, do everything we can to, uh, buoy people up. Well, somebody <laughs> just recently said to me that they were getting the message, um, you're not moving on quick enough. And I right. said, add for me to that sentence because it's all about the deliverer of the message like ooh, this makes me uncomfortable you know it's not about the grabber absolutely yeah exactly that's so perfect and moving on another saying i would like us to just tie up in a trash bag and throw away forever Mm. Mm. um our our grief is our experience of our pain and our loss is a journey that we're going to be on for the rest of our lives it doesn't mean in 10 years we're going to look and behave the same way we did the day of somebody's death but there's no moving on. There's a journey you're going to travel or moving forward at best, I would say is an expression I'd be comfortable with. But yeah, I think your point is really, it's about, it's about the person who's observing you. It's about their discomfort and their pain Mm -hmm. and their judgment. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, I think we just all need to get, and that's because, I mean, this is what I would wager to guess is because that person isn't good about attending to their own pain. Exactly. Yeah. Really, you know, if, if you can't sit and bear witness and find compassion and kindness to your own pain and really be present to it, then there's no way you are equipped to show up and bear witness and hold space to somebody else in their pain. And which is problematic for you, you know, the person who can't do it. But also, this is where I think so much unnecessary harm happens yes. for people. You know, grief is hard enough, death and loss is hard enough, but the unnecessary harm happens when people in our lives well-intentioned as they are, you know, show up and do that work of, you know, hurrying you up and moving you on and changing the subject and, you know, trying to fix you. And that's the unnecessary harm because the message is there are, there's something wrong with you. Your pain is, makes me uncomfortable. You know, I worry it's contagious kind of thing. You know, those are the messages that the griever is hearing from you when you're, think you're delivering some well-meaning piece of advice, like move on. Right. What what you're telling the griever is, I can't really trust you to be there for me, is really what you're telling them. 
you know. Or your story hurts me too much. Stop. Right. It's, stop. It's too much. That's exactly. I can't hear it. That's it. Exactly. Um, and I think that's really hard. And what's been interesting, you know, one of the things I experienced personally, Becky, and I imagine some of your guests, and I'm sure some of your listeners have had this too, is that what I discovered is there were a whole bunch of people, so many people showed up and were of great support. We were a part of a network of, you know, a large group of friends. So let me just say right off the bat, I was so grateful to have so many people who loved and cared about me and Lily and, you know, brought us food. Thank goodness. Cause otherwise I, you know, probably wouldn't have eaten or fed my daughter for weeks and, you know, took, did lots of lovely things. And when people don't know how to watch you be in pain, especially the people who are closest to you. I was so surprised to discover how some of the people I thought for sure would be around and, and accompany me through those early years weren't because they couldn't sit in their own pain over the loss of Eric. And so they definitely couldn't sit and attend me and Lily in our pain. And yet other people who I wasn't that close with or met after the loss turned out to be the very people who were most equipped and able to come alongside us in our journey and bear witness to us and hold space for us and not leap to trying to fix. And so I always say grief causes, you know, sort of this surprising exodus and entrance of people in our lives. And they aren't necessarily the people that you think would have been there. I don't know. Does that resonate for you or absolutely talk about that? Okay. Absolutely resonates. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter relationships. It could be family, you know, it could be best, you know, quote unquote, best friends. Yeah. And, you know, and I think there's a subtext in here that sometimes, you know, I tend to be a bit forgiving with those messages because again, our culture hasn't taught people how to do this. Okay. And right. Right. And, and so they haven't had practice. How would we know? How I mean, our parents know? didn't, and our parents probably didn't model this and our grandparents didn't model this. So how would we know? I agree. There's a forgiveness that has to happen a little bit there. And because when how, you don't know any gut, you know, it's as if they've been stabbed at times, either seeing the pain in the griever's face or as you suggested, you know, they know the person deeply themselves. They're experiencing their own grief. And yeah, sometimes that's just too much for them to right. be able to even consider. I mean, I, I know somebody very, very dear and it's a different situation. And she was telling me, and she's in the helping field and she was telling me, you know, just about how she, because of her own experience, just couldn't be with a, a good friend. And, and she was torturing herself over that. You know, it's, I think, I think that's the other thing just to look at. Some of us have gifts like you and I are get the megaphone out. Let's talk about this stuff and let me be there. And I can be at the side of a dying person. I can take care of a dying person. Yeah. It's a deep, deep, deep feels, but I am a deep, deep, deep feels person. Many, many people cannot, you know, don't feel comfortable doing that or just plain may not Mm -hmm. be able to do that. And that's okay too. Don't beat yourselves up, but take these conversations and understand a bit more. You know, I think, I think even if you can't do it, if you can just understand more, the communication will be easier. Come from a place of love, really. Isn't that the bottom line? Absolutely. Come from a place of love. And that starts with finding kindness and compassion for yourself and your own 
and just understanding what your own limitations and edges are and which, which edges are you willing to push on and which aren't you willing to push on. And you, and I think using it as an invitation, you know, using conversations like the one we're having today as an invitation there, it isn't black and white. It isn't, you're going to be a Becky or a Lisa and, you know, want to grab a megaphone and talk about it and be by people's side, or you want to run and hide, but where are you on that spectrum? And and what are you interested in exploring and what direction are you interested in moving or not in that? You know, so just to use it as an invitation and not as a opportunity to sort of judge yourself or stand your ground either, just to sort of be curious. You know, my favorite words in the world are curiosity and wonder. And so I think these challenging moments, like for that friend of yours that you were talking about, is when I start to have hear those internal conversations going on in my head, like, geez, I wish I could show up for my friend, or I wish I could do better, or I should. I just get real curious, like, what are the story, like, what are the stories that are going on behind the emotions in my head? What is the dialogue that's happening there? And just get really curious, because maybe they're these messages that you learn from somewhere that you didn't even know were there, and they're really causing you harm. So um, I've done a lot of that work, of course, now that I spend my days um, you know, professionally and personally uh, writing and talking about and speaking about grief and loss, which is just getting really curious about all of the stories behind the emotions um, that I'm having. And it's really allowed me to feel more comfortable with the entire, the entire rainbow of emotions. I think you hit on a point earlier as well, because, you know, some people just stop at talking about emotions. (laughs) You know, they're just like, stop sign, don't go there. (laughs) But but to tiptoe into the work, you know, at the very bottom level, just remembering that 100% of us will die and 100% of those we love will die. You know, at some level, we need to wrap ourselves around that concept and baby step into that preparation of when it may happen for a loved one. Or like you said, thank you so much for highlighting that business work you did of taking the piece of paper out and writing these things down. That's cerebral. Don't have to go into emotions. That's huge. It's huge. Absolutely. And again, you're just, this isn't about your, you know, I think it's so funny. I think often, and you saw this probably a lot in doing work with folks with anxiety is that we, think that if we think about something over and over again, we're going to keep the worst from happening, right? That's a lot of people's mode of operation. And I think with death, people are on the flip side, which is if I even think about it or talk about it, it's going to make it come true. Yeah. And that just isn't, it's going to come true whether you think about it or talk about it. The only difference is how will you be that much more better emotionally, practically, financially, intellectually, the whole, you know, prepared, all of those things for that moment. It's not going to take away the moment when it comes and it will come, but what it might do is allow you to have more peace of mind, have a deeper connection with that person, be maybe more financially stable. I mean, frankly, we didn't really have life insurance. We were young. We didn't think about, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons from the intellectual, financial, practical down all the way down to the emotional to begin to have these conversations because having them won't bring about death. All it will do is help us be that much more prepared to address it, you know, when those times come. Because there's repeated stories, isn't there, of people, even very, very old people, you know, that are left where the family, you know, there's no no idea. There's, you know, no instructions of where to find things. And 
Yeah. So and just from about a then practical the ripple effect. level. Yeah. Yeah. The ripple effect after that then means there's fighting with families and oh, there's yeah. concern that people weren't ex- respecting the wishes of the person who passed because people didn't really understand what the wishes were. So yeah, there's lots of reasons to kind of, um, tiptoe your way in, as you said, I like that, you know, sort of like dip your toes in the water of those conversations and figure out where your edges are and figure out where the edges are of the people who are your closest to and find somebody you trust who seems about at the same place that you are and just try to, you know, do a little exploring and see how it goes and listen to shows like yours. Um, you know, listen to shows like mine, do follow folks who do writing and reading on this. You know, I think it's more accessible to people than they might imagine. I do want to throw out a resource at this point, just because. Yeah. Um, so I have a friend who created this document called, and it's www.gentle-conversations.com. And this is a tool for sitting down with a loved one or even yourself. Um, and it's very non-clinical. And it's very beautiful. So if there's any of our listeners out there that may have a loved one um, that they'd like to initiate a conversation with and don't know where to start, that's free. It's totally free. Just take a peek at that and see what you think. I love that. Yeah. I love it. I'm going to check it out myself. Yeah. It's a really, really beautiful tool. And I've, I've used it and it's similar to the dignity therapy I used to do with people at end of life. Um, but it's, again, it's not clinical and it's more about, um, it covers those Fine. issues that a family would want to know as well. And it'll open the door then to be like, oh yeah, so where do you keep these passwords? You know, that's not on there right. specifically, but I think it will, you know, it starts getting the brain going in that direction. Absolutely. You know, you, if, if I might, you know, you brought something up there, which is, I think this, it sounds like that this guide that your friend has shared um, is just really helping people find the language they need, Absolutely, you know, find kind of the tools and language they need. And that's why I created the cards, the empathy cards that I did for that same reason is that we all struggle so much to, to just know what to say. Um, and that we're worried we're going to say the wrong thing. And is, when we're talking about, you know, grief and loss after death and um, what happens for so many of us is because we're worried about saying the wrong thing, we just don't say anything and we don't show up. And I think we think somehow we fool ourselves into thinking that that's better than showing up and saying the wrong thing. But I would argue that by not saying something, you're saying something. Exactly. You know, back to what we said before, when you don't say something, when you don't send a card, when you don't pick up the phone, when you don't send a text, when you don't show up at the luncheon a month later or whatever, you're saying your pain makes me uncomfortable. I, you know, I can't, I can't handle seeing you cry. Um, you know, I don't want to think about my own death. You're saying something when you're not saying something. So language and, and the narratives around grief and loss have been a big passion of mine. And, um, that's why I created the line of empathy cards that I did, which are saying, helping people find the language when they're at a loss for words. So they've, they've all been written, really out of my own personal experiences and my professional experiences as a social worker and therapist myself about what is, what is it that somebody in their early and middle and later stages of grief really want to hear and how can we deliver those messages so that somebody who's wanting to show up for somebody and goes to the major box store and sees all those cards that say all those, frankly, very harmful messages like, you know, he's in a better place now or whatever the, the sayings go. For me, they were harmful for me. Yeah. 
um, I created messages that are going to be much more deliverable. And that really came out of, frankly, Becky, about a year ago. I still have my box of cards, you know, eight years later. And I got out the big box of cards and started going through them one at a time and realized every single one of them, two, two themes that I noticed. One was all of them came within the first three weeks of Eric's death. Mm-hmm. It all stopped after that, mm-hmm. you know? So that's a big major flag. People are in shock in the first three weeks. A card almost isn't even necessary. It's actually when the shock starts to wear off that when you need people to show up. So that was one theme that I was like, oh, I need to design cards that help people show up six months later and a year later and five years later, you know, that kind of thing. And then the other theme was just messages that were, as I said, either very harmful sayings or they were very cliched or Mm -hmm. frankly, I found them harmful. Like, I'm not religious. That's no offense to somebody who is. But pe- people who were friends of mine who weren't religious either were giving me religious cards. And I was thinking, like, is this all that is available <laughs> to you at the store? Because when you go to the grief section at Target, is it all, like, you know, crosses and lilies of the valley and whatever, you know, the yeah. things are? And, again, if that's your thing and you know the person who's grieving, that's important to them, great. But I was just not seeing any cards out there that really would have – actually been of comfort to me and meaningful. And so that's why I created what I did because as, as our conversation is evidencing today, language matters, talking about things matter, showing somebody that you, you see them and you hold them exactly as they are without judgment is the best gift you can give somebody who's experienced death in their life, period. I think it's brilliant that you've put out this line of cards, and we'll definitely have a link to it at the end. I think this is lovely. Can I make a suggestion for one if you haven't done it yet? Yes, I'm taking notes right now. Okay. (laughs) I'm a train wreck when it comes to supporting someone with grief inside. Uh, Please forgive me. That's fantastic. Well, I'll let you in on a little secret. I don't think it's one of my cards that's up online, but it's a very similar message. And that is, I know um, when people don't know what to say, they say stupid things. And then on the inside of the card, it says, but you know me, I've never been afraid of looking stupid. So here I am. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. I also have a few of my line of cards, I will warn you, and our listeners have expletives in them because also I think sometimes swear words actually are exactly what are called for. And so for that particular card, I have one. Again, I don't think it's up on the website yet, but it's coming soon. It has a version of that message, but with, I won't say it because I don't know if your program is clean. Go it, but do it. It says, like, I know when people don't know what to say, they say it's stupid shit. And then on the inside, it says, I'm sorry for all the stupid shit people have been saying to you. <laughs> Well, I wanted to say I'm a shit storm yeah. instead of okay, well, there you go. so yeah, there you <laughs> glad go. we've got that cleared up. I but. mean, my podcast is called Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, so clearly I'm not afraid to swear, but um, right. yeah, so anyway, so yeah, I'm absolutely, I'm, and I am, I'm actually, um, people can re- follow me on social media and contact me on my website, and I'm, I'm open to, um, right now my cards are written sort of broadly across all kinds of loss types, because I want to make sure we have like the language that's most accessible to most people. Um, but I do have um, another 14 cards that aren't even up yet with additional messages. And as I grow and hear from people, I'm going to continue to make sure that I'm addressing, um, you know, specific types of loss or situations that might call for a different kind of message, whether it's, you know, I do have one for sort of prenatal loss and early childhood loss that's very specific to that type of loss, etc. So I am being mindful that you can't just kind of lump everybody together with one, you know, 
one message. And that's Absolutely. why I've kind of cr- created a variety of options so that um, people don't look through their box eight years later like I did and cringe and cry at the sort of missed opportunities. And so that the other people don't look back eight years later and say, you know, I never sent so-and-so a card because I didn't know what to say. Now you don't have any excuse because the tools are right there for you. Oh, that's beautiful that you're putting that out in the world. Hey, so as we're wrapping kind of here, can I, I, I've got a burning question. Okay. Love burning questions. Go for it. Therapist to therapist. (laughs) How well did your academic training prepare you for loss and grief? Yeah, that's a good one. You know, um, I actually think it did. I do think there's, I'm going to say both and yes. And yes. And I think it prepared me because I understood the importance of um, seeking and accessing mental health and other wellness support. Um, I had done a lot of my own introspective work about my emotions and my belief systems because you have to do that as you go through. I, I got a master's in social work, but whatever your sort of mental health training was, you had to do a lot of internal, you know, navel gazing, some might yeah. say. Um, so I think that definitely helped. And actually, because of the misdiagnosis, Eric and I were already kind of in um, receiving counseling for the family because of some of the stuff that was going on. So I think I had, was already kind of plugged in a little bit. So that's the yes part. I do think it helped me. And I think where I let it kick me in the ass in the beginning and where it maybe didn't serve me is I did a lot of shooting on myself, which is I should know better I should get it together. I, you know, I should have figured out what resources I need and plugged in and got it done because I had already referred, you know, hundreds of clients to all the resources in town. And when I was sort of stumbling and falling across things, I think because I thought, Lisa, you're an expert in this field, you should, you know, do everything quote unquote perfectly. Mm -hmm. So I think there was definitely some ways in which, and, you know, it kind of um, tripped me up a little bit because I had some expectations of myself that I think, I wouldn't have had if I was in some other field, you know, if that wasn't my area um, of expertise. Yeah. Great. Great. Yeah. I know for myself, um, yeah, the, the visceral emotion of a primary soul connect was different for me, even, even than the loss of my father, which was a complicated relationship when I was 22, so, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not sure. I think you're very, very eloquent at explaining. I was nodding my head a lot while you're talking. Oh. <laughs> but I'm also yeah. really a little frustrated with our whole, you know, I'm a LCPC, licensed clinical professional counselor. Okay. And, yeah. you know, again, had to deep dive. But, but I don't remember being really pushed about loss and... Um, yeah, I think in terms of the training, in yeah, terms of like the class, yeah, yeah, yeah. and beyond, um, you know, Elizabeth Kubler Ross, you know, I, uh, I actually her. started as a nurse and, you know, which was yeah. made for cancer patients, wasn't, right. you know, it was made for the pre-death part. It actually wasn't made for grief, but then somebody co-opted it and turned it into like the stages of grief, which really it's not, but, but you know what I yeah. think about it? I yeah. think it's because even practitioners, even instructors, they're they want to they're afraid of grief. They're afraid of loss. You know, we know that in the Absolutely. medical field. Oh, Lisa, we could talk another couple hours, <laughs> couldn't we? Thank you so much for the energy you're putting into the world surrounding grief and loss. And I mean that from my heart. 
Oh, thank you so much for the work you're doing and, and opening up conversations about death. And um, I really appreciate getting to know so many folks who are out there championing these conversations. And I'm definitely going to be continuing to stay tuned. Awesome. Well, that's it. That's the end of our bonus episode. What did you think? I'd love to hear from you. You can find me at reimagininggrief.com or at Reimagining Grief on your favorite social media platform. Maybe even what you're looking forward to hearing in season two. I have begun recording, but there's still room for more conversations. I'd love to hear your ideas, so make sure you drop me a line. Speaking of new content, I am so excited. I am working with a composer and musician for some new sounds for season two. I can't wait to share his talent with you. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. <laughs>